Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and you're listening to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. This is episode 589 for the 2nd of March, 2022. Vocalist and composer Somi talks about diving into the world of South African vocalist and activist Miriam Makeba for her upcoming album, Zenzile, the Reimagination of Miriam Makeba, due 4th of March, 2022. The album follows the September 2021 premiere and tour of Somi's musical theatre production based on Makeba's life, Dreaming Zenzile. Somi talks about tackling the world of Miriam's music, collaborating with guests from across the African continent, from Angelique Jo to Nduduzo Makatini, and how her own sense of Pan-Africanism continues Miriam's legacy and message of unity. Here is our conversation. There's a house in New Orleans They call the rising sun It's brand the ruin of many a poor girl Welcome to the jazz session. Oh, thank you so much. I just said that your voice was so lovely and mellifluous and then my intro was incredibly stilted, but there you have it. <laughs> I wanna say congratulations on your 2021 Grammy nomination and your win, your NAACP Image Award win for Outstanding Jazz Vocal Album for Holy Room, which was you with the Frankfurt Radio Big Band. Thank you. Really well deserved, but we're actually going to be chatting mostly about your most recent offering, Zenzile, the reimagination of Miriam Makeba. And I suspect it will garner as many, if not more, accolades because I feel lucky to obviously have heard it for the purposes of chatting to you today. And it's just unbelievably rich and musically, culturally, historically. I mean, I learned so much listening to it and then going online and reading more about Miriam. And it just, it takes you on a complete journey, uh, the kind of which really appeals to me, but it's beautifully produced from concept to realization. Why Miriam Makeba? What led you to Miriam? Oh, you know, that is, <laughs> it's a, I, I, I always say it's a, it's a bit of a weighted question. Um, it's hard to kind of sum it up in a matter of, of words but I, or sentences, but I will say that I think the first reason that it's important to honor her, um, which is different from what led me to her, but the first reason that I, I'd say it's important to honor her is because she was the first African artist to really arrive on the global cultural stage and really make space. So I believe that all of us, all African artists are indebted to Mama Miriam because she was such a space maker, because the sacrifices she made, not only as an artist, but as a, as a human being, you know, living in exile as long as she did and, and, and using her voice to, um, to speak out against apartheid at, at the height of it, of, of, of the monstrosity of that time, right? Um, and at the height of the civil rights movement here in the United States to really own a certain type of Pan-Africanism, global black consciousness, 
um, and just stand in who she was as an African woman uh, is, is so immense. And I just believe that she hasn't had the flowers she deserves, you know, for all that she gave us musically and otherwise. And I also believe that her sacrifice made room for my own journey, my own story as an artist, as an African woman, um, to choose a non-traditional path, to choose to um, use the music to, to talk about issues, to, I mean, there's so many things that I've, I've learned from her and continue to be inspired um, from, by, I'm not sure, <laughs> based on what she did in her own, in her own journey. Um, so. So that's, that is, I think, why I think a larger kind of cultural memory project around her story is important. Um, in terms of what led me to her, um, it's a, there's a much longer, deeply personal and uh, very spiritual reason of, of how I came to her story and, and why I decided to, to, to really lean into to, to honoring her, not only through this album, but also through a play that I've written honoring her as well. Um, so I think it started uh, when she passed in uh, November of 2008. I was just about to go on stage in, uh, on, in a little, uh, on a stage in the, in the East Village called, uh, you know, maybe you've heard of it, Drome, a small jazz ball club on the east side, on the east, in the East Village. Um, and a friend of mine in the business, Brian Backus, calls me and he says, hey, I know you're performing tonight, literally minutes before I was going on stage. And I normally don't even answer my cell phone if I'm like backstage, but Brian is like this magical, he always shows up in these really interesting moments in my career. So there was something I was like, well, it's Brian, let me answer. I don't know. He's, he's, just, I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but he's somebody who I just think was placed in my path for different things. And so he called me and was like, I know you're performing tonight. I just wanted to tell you that Miriam Makeba just passed. And I was like, oh my goodness, you know, and, and taking that news to the audience was, um, I don't know, it sat on me. And, and I shared and I could feel the room and how, but it was almost like unreal. You know, when you say that, but then like there's, she was not a person like in my life or like that I would see, you know, so there's this kind of, this thing happened. And at that time I would, I definitely didn't know as much as I know about her now um, and hadn't studied her in the way that I have now. But anyhow, so that night I went home um, and I was like, well, who's gonna like honor her? Like, where's the, what's the service? What's the plan? And I emailed a bunch of different venues in, in uh, New York. I emailed people at you know, Lincoln Center. I emailed different, different folks. And I remember, and everybody was like, oh my God, of course we would have loved to, but you know, six days from now is like, you know, how do we make a room and these things? But the Village Gate um, had just, the, the site, the original site of the Village Gate had just reopened as Le Poisson Rouge. And um, Bryce Rosenblum wrote back and was like, hey, Somi, we're opening, actually. We, we, we have a room. When would you like to do it? I was only there for a week more because at the time my father was in the middle of going through it, his own journey um, with cancer. And I was sort of shuttling between New York and, and, and Illinois. And I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to do it. And I'd been doing this series where I would support different African artists every, you know, every two months, I would bring a different African artist over. And I said, you know what, you know, why don't I do, why don't I produce a, a, a memorial concert with different artists, African artists, jazz musicians, people from her young and old, like multi-generational. They were like, no problem. I said, I don't have anybody booked, but I'm going to try. And I called basically all kinds of people. And of course, anybody who was in town said yes. Um, and I ended up having, it was crazy. And I ended up having this house band who would basically accompany each of one of us who would come up to perform. The house band <clears throat> was um, led by a South African bass player named Bahiti Kumalo. And Bahiti was basically, you know, the his he called basically Paul Simon's band, right? That's who, that's who he was touring with and that's who they were touring with. All these... South African musicians in New York. 
Um, and so they said, yeah, we'll come and be the backing band. And then I also asked, um, and like Kanon, I was just asking younger artists, Kanon came and did a performance, Le Nupien did a performance, um, other jazz musicians, African jazz musicians, Gino Sisson did a performance. And then I started reaching out to um, jazz musicians of her generation. And Randy Weston said, yes, I'll come and do a performance. And Neil Clark is the percussionist in, in Randy's band, in Barbara Randy's band. And, and he said, you know something, why don't I call Harry? And I said, um, Harry Belafonte? <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. And he's like, maybe he'd come. So he calls Harry Belafonte because he used to tour with him. And Harry Belafonte agrees to come and does the eulogy. Paul Simon finds out, but he said, let me ask Paul. Paul Simon comes and does a short set as well. I mean, it was, even talking about it is like, it still gives me the like chills because I remember literally all of this happened within the course of six days. And I remember everybody being like, how did you have all these people in the room? And I said, this is not, this is the power of Miriam Makeba. This is how much she's loved. All, I mean, <laughs> literally all of those people said yes because they loved her, because they respected her, because... You know, and then they all, especially the elders, Randy Weston stood up there, told stories about what it was to tour with her and, 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 um, and Dizzy Gillespie, you know, and, and like just was holding the crowd telling us these stories. Then, you know, Harry Belafonte, who, you know, he was in the middle of the program and he talked about what it was to bring her to the United States at that very young age, what it was for her to be such an original voice, what it was, you know, what it meant, you know, um, Paul Simon spoke about what it was to, to tour with her on Graceland, which in many ways in the 1980s was when she came back into public consciousness in this country, in the United States, right? Because really it's in the 60s when she married Stokely Carmichael, she was essentially kind of erased, if you will, culturally erased in a very kind of violent and clear way, blacklisted. Um, and she kind of just, as quickly as she came, she disappeared. And which is why in many ways I believe that the work of telling her story, whether it's me telling her story or anybody, the work of holding her up is so important because if you look at what her contribution was, if you look at what it meant, what, I mean, if you just, there's so much, you know, to look at like what her, her voice, her legacy meant. Um, so anyway, that night was incredibly magical. And I mean, her bass player from when she was living in the States <clears throat> at the beginning of her career named Bill Salter, used to write her English songs. And uh, he appeared, gave me a photograph of her performing at the Village Gate when she used to do a double bill with Nina Simone and Bill Cosby was the middle act. Like in the space, Art Delugoff, the owner of the Village Gate, spoke about what that, what that run was and what it was to have Miriam McKeever and Nina Simone, who were best friends and most people don't know that. Like, come at every night for weeks at a time and do these runs together. I mean, it was, I always look at that moment as one of the most important things I was able to do in New York City. And even though it has absolutely nothing to do with my own career, you know, I just was like, because that was the only memorial, literally. And I remember like the, some of the people who were in the room, Amiri Baraka was in the room. I mean, it was insane. And there was no press. That's what was crazy. Zero press. Anyway, but we have the photos and the memories and there's some a video somewhere somehow. But I, you know, I, uh, that was the beginning, I believe, of my conversation with her and with really thinking about the memory of her. I get a bit emotional thinking about it, but, you know, it was really, yeah. Well, I'm so glad I asked what and not just why, because we got this incredible recounting of something that has obviously been incredibly pivotal in your life, but it is fantastic. Again, you say there was no press, but because you have now taken that ball and run with it and dig and delved into her life and decided to retell it and put your stamp on it, but in honoring her memory in such a beautiful way, we all now get to in some small part relive that and so I mean that's I mean that's just awesome I'm gonna just quote you to you because it's so beautifully put you said this album is my attempt to honor the unapologetic voice of an African woman who inevitably made room for my own journey and countless other African artists 
in short, I owe her, we all do. And as you mentioned, Miriam was South African. For folks who don't know, your heritage is Rwandan and Ugandan. This album features a slew of amazing guest musicians. You have uh, Shoan Kuti, son of Fela, uh, who's from Nigeria. You have the South African ladysmith Black Mambazo. You have Angelique Kiju, who's from Benin. And can you talk a little bit more about these lines between South Africa versus Africa, the fact that South African jazz has different traits to African jazz traditions, and did you have any hesitancy approaching it because of these these lines, however small they may be? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think I when, when I was thinking about the guests I wanted to bring in, you know, I, I was thinking about really different moments in her journey, whether it was when she was in West Africa or some of the people she had personal connections to or some of the artists in South Africa, the younger vocalists who are direct um, kind of who stand in that lineage, you know, Tandiswa, Mazwai and, and, and Saki and, and everyone. And also thinking about, so all of those different people represented a different moment um, in her journey. Lady Smith with, with, with Graceline, even Gregory Porter is, is very much to honor the duets she did with Harry Belafonte. Um, so, I, I mean, the lines, I don't really think about the lines uh, so much. I mean, South African jazz has a very specific kind of uh, vocabulary, if you will, right? Which I did try to acknowledge in small ways on the record. Hopefully you heard that. You know, there are small moments where you can maybe connect with that particular tradition. Um, and even, I mean, even something, you know, the great Hugh Masakela, who was a dear, dear mentor of mine, um, there's a, a, there are certain lines, you know, like actual horn lines. There's a beautiful record he did, I think that he produced for, I want to say it's called The World of Miriam McCabe. You know, at that time it was like, the records were like, Mary McCabe, the world of Mary McCabe, Mary McCabe sings. Actually, it's called McCabe sings. That's what it's called. <laughs> so, and uh, it's beautiful. And um, he produced it and you can hear, you can hear Uncle Hugh across the whole thing. You can just hear his, you can hear his voice when he's doing the background parts. You can hear like kind of just bombastic like kind of presence. And then you can hear his, his playing. And there are particular lines, for example, on the original Kuluma, um, there's like this, I don't know if you, in, in my version, there's a moment where, I mean, throughout the whole thing, it's mostly voices and strings and, uh, and a rhythm section. And then there's like this break where suddenly it's like these, I wanted them to kind of sound like these phantom go, um, horn parts that show up. And they're literally the same lines that he was playing or that he arranged or played on, on the original. So there are little moments where I try to acknowledge that South African history, that South African jazz. I mean, to me though, you know, those lines are, are malleable and, 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 and really kind of imaginary, you know, <laughs> I mean, because I think the continent has a very interesting way of articulating itself, ourselves, um, in the jazz idiom and uh and i'm interested in exploring all of that but i also i would say with this record because there are some songs as you as you probably know are that are more jazz leaning but there are a number of songs that it wasn't even about genre and I, maybe that's just sort of who i am anyway as an artist in terms of the music i normally present but i really was interested in thinking about like what are these songs today you know what's a way to consider these songs today, whether in a modern jazz, South African jazz context or, or any kind of modern jazz context, but then also just contemporary spaces. There are certain songs where I'm really playing with like pop music kind of harmonies and, and um, rhythms, you know, there's so much interesting music coming out of South Africa right now in general, you know? So right now I'm like, I should have done a whole, I'm a piano remix EP or something. I don't know. So, so um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if I've answered your question. You totally did. You totally did. And the reason I ask it is because I would have hesitation about, I mean, I am South African and I would have hesitation about approaching certain musics from the continent or the country purely because my ancestry is clearly 
not obviously African. And so I'm just interested about whether other people feel hesitant. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you do see it as, you know, just this sort of, there's the sense of unity in how you navigate through your music, through jazz, through world musics, through other, you know, African, South African jazz traditions. Um, and as you say, in fact, I mean, in some ways, Miriam's m music at the time, jazz didn't have the connotations that it has today in 2021. It was much more, I think, a popular music. And especially when a vocalist was concerned, it was about the songs and things like House of the Rising Sun and even Lakuchoni Langa, aside from its popularity, there's something, it's a folk tune. Yeah. It, it's a folk it's tune. A, it's actually like, even the way it's presented now, when I played it with my musician friends in, in, in New York, you know, they're like, oh my God, it's such a, it has like a standard energy, you know, it totally just feels like, and it is, it's our standard, right? It is a standard. It's an African standard to me. Um, but I will say just the idea of being a little afraid to step into things. Yes, I, I, I definitely go through my moments of like, oh my God, you know, especially through the making of the record where I just was like, is South Africa going to just drag me like, <laughs> first step for holding, you know, uh, for trying to hold, put, even put the language in my mouth, you know, even just to, to, to do this, you know, so, but I, and that was a huge part of why I was like, let me, you know, make sure it's, it, and it also it's not just about me. I think you can't do a Makeba, you can't do a tribute album to most greats, any icon. I mean, I guess you can, but like, <laughs> you can't really, and not, realize it's because it's, it's, it's about that other person, right? So for me, it was like, how do you bring that sense of Pan-Africanism in the room? I mean, there's a record of her, Beginning Years, it's called, that I love so much because it's basically when she was, after she'd been living in Conakry for however many years, she basically assembled a, a group of musicians, had this amazing West African band, and it changed her sound. So she's like, singing as a South African woman, like you hear like all of who she is, but in the context of this, uh, these other kind of harmonics and rhythms. And it was, it's amazing. It's called Beginning Years. It's my favorite. It's one of my favorite records of hers, probably like my top three or four of hers. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite records of hers. And it's, and I, and even recently I was in Senegal very recently and I, I did this performance with these Senegalese musicians and I was like, oh my God, this is that energy of like being from the East and you're in the West and it just like, it changes everything. Um, and so I think one of the things that I feel really proud about is just like knowing that the continent is my home, you know, because as many, as nuanced as we are, as, as you know, there's so many, so many things that we can focus on that are so different about us. But there's a there's a through line that's that is home base, you know, and that is is a wonderful thing to step into. I love I love that. I love that discovery, you know, um, and that we meet each other. And I think that's what her work did, you know, but I, I will say that it was important to me also just having my, you know, colleagues and friends from South Africa to be a part of it. And, 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 and I really, uh, there are a lot of people, a lot of South Africans who I really, really consulted through the whole journey of the project and of the making of this music. Um, so I'm hoping that it feels honest more than anything. I know I'll never sound like a Tosa woman, but I, I, I appreciate, uh, but I, I hope that they can, they can hear the, just the honesty that I was trying to get, get at and, and, you know, my own, my own small way. <laughs> Can't I 
you spoke about and it's a trait of a lot of South African jazz and certainly her music but it's the fact that a lot of the songs she sang were in Xhosa, her native tongue and I think your pronunciation is fantastic though I'm not fluent in the language but I would love to know what your process was like familiarizing yourself with this Xhosa and getting to the point where it felt second nature to you and you could emote and focus on the song and the musical content. It sounds so comfortable to you. And also in singing in that language, did it allow you to inhabit Miriam's world on, a, on another level that you were aware of? Um, okay, so I, I'll answer the second question first. I, I mean, I think that to inhabit her world, I, I would say that this is this journey through this the the project you know and by I, I talk about it as a project because it is an album and a play and all these other things but so it's been you know spiritually rigorous in in a, in a beautiful way you know because i think whenever you're talking about ancestors whenever you're speaking their names whenever you're trying to remember a life that has been lived it opens a certain thing you know and um, that has been humbling and just so beautiful, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and like I said, I think that that really began at that time unknowingly. I think I didn't really know in that memorial that that's what was happening. Like I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't realize that world that I was sort of opening myself up to. to um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for just the opportunity to intentionally acknowledge an ancestor, you know. Well, I think that's, that's one part. And then I think in terms of the language, I won't say that I ever was like, so free. <laughs> I think, you know, you play, you perform and perform and perform a song and eventually, you know, the, it's it's partly muscle memory, you know, um, and then it just came to a lot of people being like, "Zoe, it's fine," you know. But but a lot of people also being like, "No, the T is wrong." And I can listen. It's funny because over time, you know, there are certain things that I'm like, "Oh, I didn't get that T. I didn't get that B." You know, it's supposed to have more of this. It's supposed to, have, you know. But I think there were enough time. En there are enough moments that it's right that um you know that, that I'll, I'll be forgiven <laughs> if you will um but you know i've at the end of the day like i said i think at the end of the day i'm just trying to be i just want to be honest with the work you know i just uh want to be honest with it and I, I i hope that that's what they feel by they, I'm speaking really about South African audience who can listen to the, who, you know, like any vernacular language, when you listen and you know the language, it's different. It's a different way. The cadence was is this, or the meaning means this. It just, the, the song is a different experience for them. So um, it's really important to me that, that, and it means a great deal that I'm here talking with you as a South African about this work, you know, and I, and I think, um, yeah, it's important to me that that people at home who speak the language can can be like, okay, she tried, <laughs> as they would say.
Hello, a quick note from me, Nikki, to tell you how you can best support the jazz session if that's something that tickles your fancy. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of listeners who are so enthused by these conversations that they head over to Patreon to join the Jazz Session's Patreon page. They become patrons. If you go to thejazzsession.com slash join, that's thejazzsession.com slash join, it will link you to the Patreon page and you'll be able to find out more about how you can become a member for as little as $5 per month today. So please do head over to that link if that sounds interesting and enticing to you. There are all sorts of perks to be had and there are only two tiers of membership, $5 a month or $10 a month. Take your pick. The other way that you can support the podcast is by rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This takes a matter of seconds, rating it to be specific, and it helps with the podcast's visibility on web pages, in searches. It helps other folks who might be interested in these conversations find the podcast. Really important and invaluable in the world of podcasting. The other way you can support this show is by tweeting, Facebooking, or Instagramming about the show at large or about specific episodes that you know you really enjoy. So please do feel free to give the show a shout out. And if you tag the jazz session on any of those social media platforms, I'll be sure to repost your wonderful praise and gladly so. So thank you for listening and for any support that you may show the podcast now or in the near future. But I have homework. I need to go and uh, do some more listening and find the Guinea Years album. And you mentioned what you loved about that album partly is that that time for Miriam changed her voice. And I was reminded in preparing to speak to you that Miriam had an incredibly supple voice, but it was quite a light voice. And it's funny because when she sang in her lower range, there was more heft or I guess more of that typically African vocal quality that was maybe more guttural or muscular. And I'd never actually thought about your voice in comparison to Miriam's. And I think that similarly, you possess an incredibly pure sometimes lighter quality to your voice. I think about you singing Ginger Me, where it's beautiful, it's high, it's absolutely, you know, piercingly pure. But like Miriam, you've displayed many more colors um, in your voice as time has progressed and as you've, you know, recorded different albums. I'm thinking actually on Holy Room, I was quite taken aback when I heard you sing Black Enough because there was this robustness and I was like, oh, that's fantastic. You know, it's just, it's another color and it's another string to your bow, so to speak. And also similarly, your vocals on Hapo Zamini are just baller, amazing. And I love both qualities, you know, but it's so interesting to hear them exist in, in both exist in one person and then to liken it to what sounds like a similar change that Miriam went through over time. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were on the kind of facets of the voice and if you were aware of using your voice in a different way to approach this Makeba material. Well, I would definitely say I was intimidated by not only the language, and I, I guess I should have also mentioned I had a tutor for about six months um, where I was, when I was living in South Africa and doing research there on her life, um, who, you know, gave me more context language and, you know, and, and, and all of that. So um, that definitely helped in terms of pronunciation and, and just somebody to be intentionally like holding me accountable for, you know, just the language itself away from the songs. Right. Um, I, I would say I definitely, you know, it was an intimidating process to, cause Miriam, she's a great voice. And, um, you know, I would say, well, firstly, I would push back at the idea. I mean, there's this kind of stereotype of, of like the guttural thing as the African thing, the roots thing. I mean, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there are so many colors that are a hundred percent African, you know, and it could be that kind of light bell quality of a voice, and and it could be something else. I mean, my mother, to shout out my mom, who's a beautiful voice. She's not a singer professionally, but um, 
she has a beautiful voice and she has this kind of bell tone about her the way she sings everything you know um and it's just there's a sweetness that is so very much home you know there's a way that she sings it there's a way that the women in western uganda sing that is very much just how they sing those songs you know um so I would say that um, definitely there's been an opening. I mean, I think that my live shows, I think what's interesting about the live record, my, my Holy Room record being the one that ended up being nominated. I mean, I, do, I know it's a combination of different things in a journey and awareness and over time and whatnot, but there is something interesting about the live one is the one that was like acknowledged in that way. And I think perhaps it's the first time that the people who maybe don't, know me in the and like who don't necessarily categorize me in like a jazz space because I'm not straight ahead in any way <laughs> um I think that there are so many jazz aesthetics that show up in my live performance um you know both improvisation and and just all the different there are so many things about the jazz vocabulary and idiom that does show up in that and I think that's the beauty of the stage right like it's the, the freedom um, that we talk about in that, in that, that that music inherently and explicitly asks for, right? Um, and not to say that other genres don't, but I think jazz is very explicit in asking for the improvised voice, whether from a vocalist or anybody else. Um, and so I think that, yes, I've always sort of stretched, but I think I always kind of there's a, there's a, because I kind of grew up really my first kind of training, if I, you know, it was, in the class, it was from a classical space. There's like a, you don't, you do what's on the page. You know, you plan and then you sing it that way over and over and over and over. <laughs> so, so, um, it took, you know, that's, it, it, I think that progression, at least in my own journey, not Mama Miriam's journey, but my journey, that progression is really, uh, about getting to a certain type of freedom that I could even trust myself to be more and more open. And I think I will give that credit a hundred percent to my incredibly generous and truly gifted band members who constantly remind me to trust myself, you know, constantly push me to stretch, you know, and this is just years of, of that <laughs> and being like, and then them encouraging me and, and just them, you know, they know my heart. So, um, I think, I can't speak to what her journey was, but I think that if you look at even old footage, there, there, I mean, she was already kind of open in a certain way, but I think, you know, her voice shifted obviously with age, but also I think, uh, there was a certain unapologetic, uh, kind of approach to the story, like what she was recording in her later years about that were more rooted in maybe let's say tradition. Um, well, I'm thinking really specifically of like her Sangoma record. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't really, it's interesting you're talking about that because I can't really speak to what that journey was for her. But I, I would say that trying to embody her voice, whether for this record or for the play, and I would say more so for the play because the record, I really was like, how do I make these songs my own? Whereas with the play, it's like, how do I really embody her, right? Um, and it did open. I mean, it, it has, it challenged me in a way that it opened up other sides of my voice. And it also, um, and again, this has been, I mean, I, I started this, the research for this project six years ago now for, since we're counting, uh, the pandemic, <laughs> you know, my play was about to open five days you know, the rec the play got shut down. I mean, the, the whole production got shut down uh, five days before opening night because of uh, COVID-19. And so this has been like an ongoing thing, you know. <clears throat> and I would say, so maybe the work that you're hearing when you hear Black Enough or you hear my last records, it's, it's all kind of a part of what that journey of learning has been. But I think more so, than, more than anything, I would say... Um, yeah, there's a freedom, you know, and I, I think it also comes from my intentional, you know, sitting down, if you will, um, in these African cities, 
to do the research or to do the work. And then you realize so many things that we kind of overcomplicate. Um, I'm saying as, as artists in, in certain kind of cultural economies, you know, like in the States where it's like in the business, the industry, you know, we overcomplicate. And I think I was over-focused on that. Let me try to make it perfect or let me try to do it the right, you know, this way. And, 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 um, I don't know. I'm not even sure I'm making sense, but, but I think there's a freedom. I think really the end of the day, there's freedom that has just come from time. I think when you're in the work for a stretch of time, um, you know, for all these years and, and a freedom that comes from being in a context where you realize that you're given all kinds of privilege just by geography or citizenship. And, and there's freedom that comes from looking closely at someone like Miriam Makeba and saying, in spite of all of that, she showed up. You know, and and there's freedom that shows up when you, you know, try to take on another language and, and a voice that is, I mean, I think Mary Makeba has a magnificent voice and her instrument was incredible. Um, and there are certain things that sound very simple, but they're actually technically tricky. <laughs> So I, yeah, I've learned a lot from her. And if that's shown up as more fearlessness and then, then I'm great. That's one more thing to add to the very long list of why I should be grateful to her, you know. That's beautifully put. Well, I think, I think some of your instrument is equally magnificent. Um, and it, it's just, you know, I love your earlier records and I find so much to listen to and something new to listen to every time I, you know, hear them. And of course, hearing you live is a completely, is a different experience. Again, there's, there are just new things to take in. Uh, but it is, there's something just kind of, yeah, fascinating and celebratory about hearing somebody just, I guess, just change and grow as a person, but yeah, as a musician, which is, which is life. But to wit to get to witness it is is I think great fun. But also I'm a, a vocal nerd, so I suppose that's also why I'm like I'm like oh this is new <laughs> this is you know a, this is a joel. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you have written this musical theatre production as you mentioned. It's called Dreaming Zenzile, and I did see online that it was the release was pushed because of the bloody pandemic so i'm very excited for it to actually finally get to be performed i mean you must be beyond excited and i wanted to talk a little bit about the inclusion of the string arrangements on this album which i believe your your longtime pianist uh toro Doro did do they exist in the musical production as well or is it just for the record yeah so the thing that that the, the thing about the two projects or the, you know, they're meant to be in conversation with each other. Um, so they're not, it's not a cast album in that uh, when you hear, you know, Love Tastes Like Strawberries with me and Gregory Porter, then suddenly Gregory's going to pop up on stage. No. <laughs> That's what you were asking. But I'm saying like, it's, the, the difference is like the album is like me as myself doing a tribute, you know, like, Yes, and that's also me as myself because I'm I wrote it, you know, I wrote the play, but but I would say that uh in theater, right? You, it's what the the music is 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 made based on what the story needs. You know what I mean? Like you you frame it or it's framed based on what's happening in the trajectory of the of the storytelling arc and all of that. So, um so no. The play has <laughs> uh Five actors, including that's including myself, because um, I'm playing the role of Miriam Makeva, and and um, and then four um, instrumentalists who play the band um, as, as part of the show as well. So yeah, but that's also in some ways that's good that they're in conversation, but they're not an exact carbon copy because no, then you can hear the album and not say, okay, well I've done it, I don't need to go see the production. And oh no, 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 very different. And, and, but hopefully, you know, people will come and hear some of the songs, but in a different, most of the time it's in a different, or different type of arrangement, you know, and different, you know, and yeah. So I'm excited about that. And there are songs of hers that are in the play that are not on the album. 
and and vice versa. The African woman is to be loved, to be exalted, to be handled with grace, to be respected fiercely. Mama Africa, we salute you. just about repertoire because Miriam had so many albums and it was vast and I wondered if you could speak about how you decided which songs to include on the album and also if you could tell listeners a little bit about I'm particularly fond of your reimagining of Pata Pata as I've told you and part of the reason is because your reimagining of it makes it this ballad Toro's strings bring in this kind of cinematic element. You have Miriam's voice over in it speaking. And because of the significance of that song and what and her leaving us, for lack of a, a better term, it's particularly poignant being slowed down. So I wondered if you could tell people a bit about that and how you chose, how you narrowed it down. <laughs> well, so I would say <clears throat> so I, like, as I mentioned, I began the research around this project, not really knowing how it was going to show up in the world as an album or a play or anything at the time, just knowing I wanted to look more closely. And um, I started by listening to really everything. Like I had this, I had this uh, residency that kind of popped up and I was like, oh, this is what I'll do at this residency. It was a Robert Rauschenberg residency in Florida, Captiva Island. I was there for four weeks, five weeks. It was amazing. <clears throat> and all I could, all I did was, you know, listen and read. I read as much of, I, she has two kind of, well, she has one real autobiography. One is right here. And then she has another that, well, this isn't with the cover, but here's the cover. Anyway, <laughs> she has another that's like after she came back, but somebody else kind of did it, this beautiful book. Anyway, so I, I studied these two books. And I also um, just listened to whatever I could listen to from, you know, when she was with like the Skylarks or the Manhattan Brothers, like in the 50s and, you know, in, in, before she left South Africa. And then just looked at her whole catalog really throughout the rest of her life. And what I did is I just tried to mark the songs that had a more visceral, you know, I had a visceral connection to. Right. Like you all, you know, there's always like a song or whatever, some songs of a record that will stand out more than the next, even if they're all beautiful or whatever. But just I really tried to make note of the ones that I had like a real, oh my God, what is this? What does this mean? What, you know, how much fun were those backgrounds or whatever? I don't know. <laughs> so, so um, made this list and I had maybe I would say like 50 something songs, really. And um, then I contacted a, a linguist at Witzwaterstrand and uh, the university in, in, in Johannesburg, for those who might not be familiar with this. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, and um, 
I asked for translations, right? So he translated, he gave me a basically synopsis of, of all of the songs, right? And, uh, and then I started just looking at meaning and like, okay, do I want to, so then that kind of list kind of, kind of got a little smaller, a little smaller because really, I mean, and then, and then at that point I started exploring the, when I started exploring the idea of the play, then it was like, I was kind of looking at like, what's her life story and what are the songs that accompany those different moments in her life story or that could potentially be telling those story, you know, that version of, of her story or that part of her story. So, and then when it came down to the actual choosing of songs for the album, I think we had about 26 that I, you know, and, and that was me just being like, okay, I, I'd love, these are some of the songs I'd love to do. Pata Pata was never on the list at all. I was like, cause she, notoriously did not like the song and wrote it kind of like flippantly like when she was young and just like oh it's a lover's dance blah, 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 blah. and then it became her biggest hit that she had to sing the rest of her life in fact it was the last song she ever performed and there's something about how light that song was even though she was doing so much heavy work Right, like the the like people even to this day when I'm like oh, I'm working on this project about Mira Makeba and then people who don't know her really if you say pata pata oh pata pata you know they know pata pata you know they might know the song and they don't even know who sang it right <laughs> so um, which is cra which is totally crazy to me but I find that it's really half and half either people know exactly who she was or they're like mm, I don't know and then some of those mm, I don't know people know pata pata but anyway <laughs> so. Then narrowed it down to um, 16 songs, and then the 17th became the Pata Pata. And, and I only agreed to, I, I, well, so there was a whole conversation around, well, I'm not going to sing it because she didn't want to sing it. Why would I sing this song if she didn't like singing this song? You know, like, why am I going to ask people to sing that song? But then also, like, Pata Pata is kind of like, in African standards, it's kind of like the way, you know, jazz snobs will look at like somebody being like, we're going to sing My Funny Valentine. And they're like, again, really? Like My Funny Valentine? Not that that's not a beautiful song, but you know what it's I mean. It's overdone. <laughs> it's overdone and oversung. It's overdone. It's like done and done and done. Um, so you're always like, okay. Um, so I think. Pata Pata has that thing when when you're like somewhere and there's an African band like cover band playing in the corner or someplace and then they like we're gonna do Pata Pata and you're just kind of like okay so totally that's a perfect so, analogy Pata Pata to my funny Valentine perfect totally right so basically I was like okay if I do do the song because the other thing is somebody said that's only it is her biggest song like you're not gonna put it on the record <laughs> I was like okay. I get it, but if I do do it, then it has to, we have to slow it down, darken it entirely, and put her voice about her politics on it. So that when people come to it expecting, oh, but, but I remember this, I wanna dance to it, then they're just like, wait. And then they actually have to think about who she was, what she re represented what she was carrying when she was singing Pata Pata. Like all, that's the thing that actually I think at the beginning of this work really was hard to reconcile when I realized how much suffering, how much sacrifice, you know, how much she was carrying, how much heartache she was carrying and that she still showed up and was glorious and generous and smiling and making people feel good. And, you know, even when she would talk about the politics, she was polite. You know what I mean? It was polite. And um, I think over time, she became more and more comfortable with letting people sit in the discomfort of those conversations. But initially, when she first got here, it was always very polite, a polite conversation, you know? Which I think is totally fine. I think it's totally fine to have polite conversations now, even when you feel as though you can tell somebody off, you know. But um, there's something about that restraint and grace and dignity and pride that's required to, to, to do that, to still show up, 
and be so generous in the way that she was. Um, and so to me, Pata Pata was like, okay, let's really, and it, it was interesting that it became the first thing that I shared. It became the, actually to me, when I looked at everything, I was like, but this is actually the first thing we should share because it's asking people to remember and not just their perception of her, but to remember and to know who she was and what she stood for. Ms. Makiba, our people happy in Johannesburg. That depends on which people you're talking about. When we speak of people in Johannesburg, we have to be specific in that in South Africa, there are two separate communities and that's the white community and the black community. Uh, I will speak for my community. I think we are happy, we dance, we sing, uh, because for, to us, uh, sometimes it's better to laugh, to keep from crying. Sakukasati <laughs> Pega. enough for taking the time to come and chat with me on the jazz session about this record i cannot wait for folks to hear it because they'll celebrate the music and you've provided a way for people both to learn about her and if they already knew about her to reflect on her legacy thank you so much nikki please be safe and uh and and just continued blessings to you and we'll speak another time thanks somi all the best Thank you to this week's guest, the vocalist and composer Somi. Her new album, Zenzile, The Reimagination of Miriam Makeba, is out on the 4th of March 2022, two days after this interview airs. And do follow Somi online for updates about the musical Dreaming Zenzile, which is now being staged in New Jersey, I believe, and I'm sure we'll be doing the rounds shortly. Hopefully it'll get to Broadway. Watch this space. 
You'll be able to find details about the tracks that were played today in the show notes for this week's episode. As usual, I will post those and any other names or links that we might have mentioned. A huge thank you to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music of this show. You're welcome to follow The Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh and on Facebook and Instagram at The Jazz Session. There is also a YouTube page to which you can subscribe if you want to watch video excerpts of my conversations with the Jazz Sessions guests. A huge thank you to the patrons over at thejazzsession.com slash join. Head there today if you want to become a Patreon member. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in and to any support that you may shower upon this show, whether it's telling a friend, family, or four-legged pal about how much you enjoy these conversations. My name is Nikki Schrera, and I will see you next week for another conversation with an astounding jazz musician about their music and their process here on The Jazz Session. <laughs>